Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by pizzas with only one topping, you dull, boring bastards. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Breakfast Magazine. Go to your happy place by looking at sensational omelets and other morning delights in Breakfast Magazine. Welcome, everyone, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. <laughs> and we're filmmakers uh, who do all that stuff while looking at a movie so that we can say, oh, that's interesting. I never thought about production from that standpoint or uh, it's really cool that they're using this technique or I learned a new technique or uh, any million things. Uh, it's fun to look at films that way. And art in general is always fun just because, look, this is episode 263 and I swear when we started this thing, I thought I would, I wouldn't have anything else to see new or fresh after like 30 or 40 episodes. I thought it would just get repetitive. Um, like we just keep seeing the same thing and noticing the same thing. And yet I feel like every single episode is a unique conversation and we make different observations. And, uh, it just goes to show that art is always standing on its own whenever it's made thoughtfully. Now there are now, I guess if we took a different tact and did only mainstream pop culture things. Like if you didn't do Paul Thomas Anderson and, you know, David Fincher and Christopher Nolan films, like, yeah, a lot of people probably are a bit derivative and cliche and, and tedious uh, after 20 or 30 films. But what the other cool thing about art, other than just being its own thing, it stands on its own. And there's always so many interesting things to, to notice and, and take away from a film. I was thinking about last month whenever you sat and watched uh, Band of Brothers and, you know, it, it just sent me down this little thought trail of sharing art is so interesting. The fact that, you know, it reveals something of you whenever you want someone to, to partake in, in something you've already experienced. It's not like we got to sit down together and watch it and like have this experience together, but sharing it with you. And, and I think we've all had that moment, that experience, like if you love music and you've ever tried to get someone like, Oh, we're talking about this thing or the song came on the radio. You got to listen to the song and, and you hit play and someone's sitting there and they're listening to a song. There's only one of two things that are about to happen. Either they get it and they sit and enjoy the song or they wait 10 seconds and then start talking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And you're like, shut up. I want you to hear this. <laughs> I want you to experience this thing. And it's so uh, interesting that people who, you know, are right there with you and people who aren't. And of course, maybe if the, the roles were reversed and they were sharing a thing with you, they would want that same level of intensity, but yet it doesn't occur to them to, to really like, understand that I'm trying to share something with you and it's very personal and it's, it's a new way to connect because someone else made a thing that I didn't make that I liked. And now I want to share that thing that I like with you and whether you like it or not is almost beside the point. Um, almost, but the fact that you, I want you to engage and know me through what I like. That's really fascinating to me that we do that with one another. Like, Oh, listen to the song, watch this movie, look at this picture, laugh at this meme. Like we're such social animals and that is only furthered through art, the creation and sharing of art. And there's just so much to be said for that. 
Yeah. I don't know. What does that make you think of whenever, you know, just that whole concept of sharing art with one another? Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, yeah, it, it does serve a, uh, an important purpose. I, I I also think how we share it matters too. Cause I mean, you know, like I'm on Instagram and everything, but it's a different animal than it is me sitting down with you saying, you know, it like when we used to work out together, um, when we lived, you know, in the same city and, you know, you'd say, you'd say, man, check out this new full song or something or whatever, or like you talk about a full song or something. And I'm like, Oh, I haven't heard that song. You haven't heard it here. Listen, you put it on. We would just sit there and we would just listen. And that's, I mean, that's different than, you know, me just sending you a meme or something for on Instagram and saying, yeah. Hey, this is, did you know this? And it, it also, it says a lot about our need for interacting socially when we share something. So it's not just that I want you to receive this and enjoy it. It's, I want to see you enjoy it. I want that enjoyment for myself. Like I would much rather sit down. Like if, if I was going to share a song with you, I could just share it, you know, uh, on the internet, on social media, or if we're together, I would rather be with you so I could see your reaction. I could, I could experience that. I could be in the room to feel the air in the room change. You know, that's what makes cinema great. When you go to the movies, I could watch Oppenheimer in my, in my living room, you know, um, or I could go to an IMAX with 150, 200 people and watch that explosion happen and feel the room change. That is an incredible experience. So yeah, you know that that was a story that happened that Nolan, you know, and a, a thousand other people decided to put together and tell, um, so that a group of two to three hundred people in a room could feel the room change. You know, it doesn't matter if it's music or movies or whatever. I, th- I think that's what we're after. It's not just about that's interesting. Not just about sharing, yeah. but it's about what happens when you do share and that other person gets it. And, you know, being a part of that. That's funny you say that. I mean, I hadn't really considered that. But to your point, like whenever, so Todd and I have been working on a a little no budget music video and I ran a test just to see if the idea was going to work. And I liked it. The idea was going to work. And so I showed it to Todd over Skype and I shared my screen with you, but then I just watched you as you were watching it to see when that moment came, whenever the test popped up on in the video and I just watched your reaction and it was so cool because at first it was like, okay, okay. And then as the, as it kept working and going, like you just, it was like a, a the sun rising or a light bulb slowly popping on and just got brighter and brighter and brighter. It was like, that was actually very satisfying. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'll bet. Yeah. I'll bet. It, who was it? It was, um, what's his, what's his name? Gosh, I can't believe I'm so bad with names when I'm put on a spot. But uh, um, he was he was in Transformers. Um, he was in Shia LaBeouf. Uh, Shia LaBeouf. Huh. When he made Shia the LaBeouf. movie about his dad, mm. about when he played his dad, he told a story that that when he he sent it to his dad and he just watched his dad watch it. Wow! Like 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 how you let me see the video. He just watched, he didn't listen to the movie. He just watched his dad watch it, the whole movie. So I, you didn't know about that, but you just did that. Yeah. You, you wanted the experience of seeing somebody 
react to something that you made or that you shared. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. because it's yours because you're sharing it, right? Like that's just the mentality yeah. that we have. Like I found this thing. It belongs to me now and I want to share it with you, but it's mine um, <laughs> because I shared it with you. And so to get that, the reaction of that, of somebody that you care about, of this thing that either you made or that you want them to experience, you want them to have joy, you know, yeah. or to, to just, you just want to see the reaction maybe, I guess. But yeah, I remember that. That was, that was awesome. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and what art are we sharing today, man? Today we are talking about Phantom Thread. Uh, so if you haven't seen this uh, film, please pause the episode, go watch it. It is streaming on Netflix. Yeah. We'll look at a handful of things. Definitely discuss a little of the cinematography without a cinematographer as well as some of the directing the sound design story and writing and other such stuff and things and stuff and a quick synopsis of the film set in 1950s london reynolds woodcock is a renowned dressmaker who whose fastidious life is disrupted by a young strong-willed woman alma who becomes his muse and lover written and directed by paul thomas anderson featuring daniel day lewis as reynolds woodcock Vicky Kripes as Alma and Leslie Manville as Cyril. If I don't protect myself, somebody will come in the middle of the night and take over my corner of the room and ask me about their f***ing asparagus. Don't be a bully. Don't there are other bully. things I'd like to do with my time. It's my time. I have no idea my what time. I'm doing here in your time. What am I doing here? I'm standing around like an idiot, waiting for you. Waiting for what? Waiting for you. Waiting for what? Waiting for you to get rid of me. To tell me to leave. So tell me, so I don't stand around like a f-ing fool. Asparagus, is this all about your asparagus? No, it's not now? about what asparagus. What the hell is it about? Are you a special agent sent here to ruin my evening and possibly my entire Why life? Why are you so rude to me? Why are you talking to me like this? Is this like my this? house? This is my house, yes, isn't this it? Is, is this house. my house? Of course it's your house. Or did somebody drop me on foreign well, soil behind enemy lines? You I'm surrounded on all sides. It's you who brought me here. When the hell did this happen? Who are you? Do you have a gun? You here to kill me? Hmm? Do you have a gun? Stop it! Where's your gun? Stop being a child. Where's your gun? Stop playing. Show me your gun. Stop playing this game. I'm not I'm playing not. a game. Yes. Mm-hmm. What uh-huh. game am I playing? What game? What precisely is the nature of my game? You tell me. Oh, this whole. What? All your rules and your walls and your doors and your people and your money and all these clothes and everything this 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 game everything here the whole <laughs> nothing is normal or natural or everything is a game yes mister no madam yes uh, are you <laughs> i love the way you ended it that's perfect <laughs> like arguing is such a frustrating thing sometimes because no one gets to argue having written out what you're going to say based on what someone else hasn't said yet. And so sometimes it's really hard to find the right word and you're just stumbling in the dark and you look like an idiot. <laughs> like arguing makes you look like a moron. And I love that there's this honesty to it because he's not making a very articulate argument either. <laughs> like he's just, no. where's, he your, gun? Like where's your gun? Where's your gun? Where's your gun? <laughs> Are you an agent sent here to destroy me? <laughs> like, it's just so really funny. The, the other thing I really love about that scene, other than like the raw honesty of what it, can be like to be in a a relationship is the pacing of the scene. It's so good. 
that that moment in the middle waiting for you waiting for what waiting for you waiting for what waiting for you to get rid of me i love that they create this rhythm there's this rising pace and tempo and it's just building 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 until she finally breaks it and it creates space for a moment of emphasis because that's the thing that she really wants to say that's kind of what this whole scene is about she's waiting for him to get rid of her um, because he's not happy with her and she's not happy with that arrangement and how childish he is and all that stuff and it it's so perfectly created by a pocket there in the middle but between every, all the other rhythm and, and movement and flow. And let's just create a little bit of moment here for let to let that moment have some emphasis uh, through the pacing of the scene. It's just great acting, of course, and I suspect uh, uh, probably good directing, but it's hard to say when you got Daniel Day-Lewis in a film. Um, <laughs> good point. But, dude, so this was your first time watching it, yeah? Yeah. How'd it go? <laughs> Where does this stand in the the oeuvre of paul thomas anderson um it's well it's kind of hard to say because daniel day lewis is in it (laughs) right i mean um i anything that daniel day lewis is in is going to be great it's just going to be better Uh, i'll just say that Uh, not great better because whenever he's on screen it's like this weird kind of thing where he demands your attention but doesn't demand it at the same time he can be invisible or he can be the only thing that you can are allowed to pay attention to right and Mm -hmm. and this film is like a great i think one of the reasons probably i would imagine that he wanted to do this as his final role is because it was so different than other things that he's super famous for there will be blood gangs of new york like he is the absolute opposite of that i mean there there are there are a lot i mean just in his not in his demeanor he's still Mm. like in a he attacks people all day every day but with words not physically you know that's what i mean like his the way that he is aggressive towards people is uh not physical whereas in those roles it, it was and i think that he kind of wanted that he kind of wanted you know he's still this powerful character but in a very different way and so it's probably a good challenge for him I one of the things I was thinking when I was watching this was what the hell did this script look like? <laughs> right. Like I, I imagine Daniel Day Lewis getting this script and reading it and thinking, what is this? Like how, you know, well, how do you write that? Like how do you write all this? You know, do you do you just write? We spend three minutes arguing. Is that on the script? You know, because yeah, how do you write that argument out on a page? Right. I'm sure there's ways. And I'm sure PTA had some way that he did it, you know, but also do you just give Daniel Day Lewis the stage, do with it what you will, you know, I'm sure he, obviously you need a script, but there have to be moments where he just is this character and, and isn't confined to a script. For me, the, this film was very him and Vicky Kripes was incredible uh, as Alma. She was amazingly beautiful and slow and, and understated um, in the best kind of way. Like I loved the whole movie for me hinged on her reactions to him. Mm. Um, So I I hated all the music throughout. I, I, it it drove me crazy. There was always music always like the whole time there was music going on and it was this fucking piano thing. And it was just driving, sorry, curse, but it was just driving me crazy. Like just stop playing, (laughs) just stop playing music for a second. 
I don't want you to tell me how to feel mm. because, and I know that sometimes they were, the music was like upbeat, but then something off kilter would happen. You know, um, Reynolds would be a punk or something and it would keep playing like this, this kind of like happy music, but he was being a punk and it was that dichotomy that they were playing with of like having happy, but that seems cheap to me. Mm. Don't make me feel something with music and not give me that thing. Just take the music out and let me feel it in real life. It was in the way for me. So that bothered me a lot, like a lot. Like it pretty much ruined the music, the movie for me, to be honest. Yeah. If they would have just had almost no music throughout, it would have been 30% better for me, maybe more. But, but so all of the cues, the visual cues that I had on how to feel in a moment, I got from almost reactions to either Cyril, who, by the way, Leslie Manville is. <laughs> She, oh my God, is fantastic. Every time she was on the screen, I was like, oh, what's going to happen? She's going to throw a wrench in something or whatever. Powerful. She's so powerful. So powerful. I mean, so the actors that PTA got are are just otherworldly, fantastic. Um, Anybody else might have ruined, you know. Not saying would have ruined it, but anybody yeah. else would have would have not been as good. They were just fantastic. I don't even know what else Leslie Manville's been in, but she's fantastic. She should be in everything. Yeah. But all all the visual cues I got were from Alma and her reaction because I trusted her. Yeah. I trusted her throughout because she was like quote unquote normal. He found her in a normal place doing a normal serving job, or whatever. And and then she challenged him a few times. And I was like, ooh, okay. I think I know where this is going. And you know, I know that this film, at least from what I got from it, feels like it's kind of like an homage to like a, a really toxic relationship where you're just, you know, basically each you're poisoning each other, mm. you know, really like you're taking shit from the other person, you know, but you're also giving it at the same time. And so it was interesting that, you know, in the end, uh, Reynolds chooses to be poisoned and because he knows he can treat her he can only treat her better when she's he's allowing her to care for him and she can only feel loved by him receiving the care that she wants to give and them sitting in that and being happy him sitting in his misery of being sick her sitting in her slight misery of knowing that she's the one making him sick but them accepting that and being together that is the definition of a toxic relationship if I've ever heard it. It's just in a physical realm now yeah. instead of meta- metaphysical. So, okay, it's, it doesn't make me feel good about watching it. And I'll probably never watch it again unless I want to get, you know, like a take notes for how to be a, how to be a better actor. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Um, the cinematography was pretty good in moments but it was also very annoying in other moments where i noticed it and it was just kind of like who is who shot this you know like I, th- there were some unmotivated angles and 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 shots that i just kind of questioned where i felt like that's something i probably would do and i'm not a cinematographer <laughs> it's just like i need to get this shot okay let's get it from here and so i wasn't i was mm. kind of thrown off by that a little bit too and then um just all, it was really long you know and i mean I see the motivation for that maybe to, cause like we need to feel like, Oh my God, when is this going to end? 
you know, kind of like a relationship, like a toxic relationship, <laughs> with, uh, like a friend viewing a toxic relationship. Like, when are you going to dump him? You know, he's bad for you. Or when are you going to dump her? She's bad for you. And maybe that's the feeling that he's trying to convey. Mm. This isn't my favorite PTA film, I will say, for those reasons. But the acting is just really, really wonderful. The pacing is wonderful in moments like the argument. But those are moments that I felt like were were like allowed to be real. Like like mm-hmm. you said, you know, it, it it felt very like we were talking over each other, you know, and I'm sure that he was saying things she wasn't expecting. You know, that's the way it felt. It felt like he was saying, like, do you have a gun? Do you have a gun? He kept saying that. And she was um taken back. Like, I, I don't know. I don't even know what to say to you right now because you're just so you're being crazy. I don't necessarily know that that was part of a script and I felt like that felt real and it felt engaging. I liked the angles there that was kind of mm. dirty where they were looking through all the, you know, like the, the candelabra and stuff or whatever that was, the frame was dirty in between her and the camera and him and the camera. So we felt like we were in between them. Uh, so that felt motivated. Uh, but anyway, I'll stop talking for a second and let you talk. Cause I'm curious of what you think. Cause obviously this isn't the first time you've seen this film. So yeah, I saw it. I saw it in theaters in 70. I want to say I saw it in 70. Ever since the master, I feel like that's mostly what he does. But if it was in 70, I definitely always saw it. Yeah, I think in some ways I agree. In other ways, for me, this this might be my favorite PTA. Like it. Oh, I love that. That's so great. <laughs> like between this Punch Drunk Love and Magnolia, like for a while it's Punch Drunk Love for me, and then um, that when we covered Magnolia, like that suddenly was like, Oh man, Magnolia. Uh, but then Phantom Thread came out, um, or, and I just, I love it. I love the color, the look, all the textures, the cinematography mostly really works for me. There's one thing I will, I will definitely, uh, harp on here in a second, but, and I think the reason I love this one more than his other stuff is because of how understated everything is. Like we spend so much time with just two people. And it never goes really haywire. The craziest thing that happens, and it's not good, don't get me wrong, but uh, the poisoning stuff is like, what? <laughs> what is happening now? <laughs> like, and now they're into it? This is their thing? All right. <laughs> like, um, yeah, that's two hours into the film, though. Yeah. You know, it's like... it's a, it's. But his, all his other films feel like they have all these very strange qualities to them. And this one doesn't really have that. Um, yeah. It's a it's a idiosyncratic guy, but it's pretty tame in you know paul thomas anderson terms and i think i love it for that because of the acting like you said the acting is so good your our three leads here are crushing it at every level daniel day lewis is a complete chameleon like you would never if you if you didn't know who it was you wouldn't watch this and there would be blood back to back and think oh yeah same guy like no Ever. like yeah. not a chance and he's just so good and he's made so much better and maybe it's the the synergy of him and vicky creeps and uh leslie manfield all working together and just all bringing something completely different and it just all like goes into the the gumbo of making a really good you know movie and i, I yeah and so i could just kind of hang out in these environments I mean, the color is so good. It's muted and yet has all this contrast to it. And PTA is really exceptional when it comes to this. Like he creates the color palette in camera that he wants. Um, And so there's a lot of muted colors, but there's also, it's not everything. 
Like he, he also knows how to make something super saturated. And because of how much of that is happening in camera, uh, he's really controlling the image on a very fine tuned level. And it's, it's something not everyone can do because they don't have as strong a vision as he has. Uh, and so like, I'm not there. I'm not even in the same, like I'm, I'm JV, you know, trying to play against the NFL over here. Like he's just in a completely different world. Um, and I, I study him for that, for his vision, for the ability to, uh, there's a lot of A-list directors that are on his level that aren't on his level in this specific way. Uh, he's just so good with finding a vision and, and figuring out where to pull inspiration and mood boards. And I'm sure all of that is just going into, uh, just beautiful, beautiful wardrobe set design, um, and cinematography. And yeah, he didn't. And this, I feel like would all come from like the 1950s Vogue, uh, magazine editorials and that kind of thing. And I was curious. And so I just kind of Googled a bunch of Vogue editorial, uh, shoots and I was like, yeah, this feels pulled. Like they all came to life. Uh, and it's just so beautiful. And there's probably other magazines and stuff of that era, but that one to me seemed the most appropriate having zero fashion sense of any era, let alone the fifties in, in specific. And so for me, yeah, I can just hang out in these environments cause it's, it's beautiful. The acting is beautiful. The characters are fully developed and lived and breathed in. Um, and they establish it really well at the beginning, right? We, we see him and we see how much he doesn't care for this woman who's just crying at his breakfast table <laughs> and just not literally crying, but she's crying out, you know, like, what do I have to do for you to notice me? Uh, and he's like, eh, pass me the coffee. <laughs> like, that looks like a really good bear claw. <laughs> like, I'll have some of that, please. <laughs> and he just does not care. Unmoved. And then we introduce, you know, her. And she is a wrecking ball. She comes in. She really, to some degree, she doesn't care. But to another degree, she cares too much. It's such a weird balance. Because that moment whenever she's having breakfast... And she's like scraping her toast and like doing the fancy water pour into her tea. Like it's just grating every sense of his nerves. And that's so good with the sound design, which is heavy, super heavy in this movie, right? Teacups clinking and the butter scraping and the butter frying really loudly in the pan. Like it's all calling attention to the environment, which we read so much more closely once we know how it affects Reynolds. And that's that scene is so important for us to know, oh, the sound is being picked up by him as well. Like he's tuning in. So it's almost like we're hearing everything through his hearing. And that's the way the, the sound design is played out because it's not like footsteps are ever really heavy. We, we, I, I couldn't tell you a scene where I really noticed footsteps, but I can tell you a lot of scenes where I noticed the, the clinking and all the environmental stuff happening. Uh, and that's because of him. Um, and in some ways it's also, we're hearing through her lens. And so it's all playing very, very heavily into it. And she comes in and she doesn't care, but there's moments when it's like, okay, she gets it. And even though she fights back like heavily, that's a great character choice to not immediately just go with the flow. She also picks her moments like, okay, I didn't know. And she doesn't like being wrong. And so she's never going to admit to being wrong. Uh, just like him. That's what he does. You, you're never going to hear him say he was wrong. And yet, the next time we're at breakfast, she's quietly spreading her but the butter. She's quietly eating and cutting her food. Like, she's still doing what he wants. 
she's just not going to do it the way she, he wants her to do it and win. And that's, it's so satisfying to watch their relationship evolve and play out. And I think that's the interesting thing is he is a toxic person and he needs someone equally as toxic. I don't know. Like it, yeah, it's, it's not a healthy relationship, but it makes me wonder, are there healthy relationships? Like, is this uh, a commentary about that? Like do aren't, to some degree, if you're going to be in a relationship for a long time, you have to make peace with, you know, the things that drive you nuts about someone and how much of that. I don't know. I would love to because, I mean, I haven't been in a relationship longer than a couple of years. And so uh, you got <laughs> me beat by uh, magnitudes. What do you think about that aspect of this movie? If you were to consider it a commentary about that's in That's interesting. Uh, so <laughs> Jenny and I are coming up on 14 years married this year. <sighs> Yeah, does that make you feel old? Because you were no, there. No, because I was there. <laughs> <laughs> um, 14 years. Uh, I will say that, that I mean, you, okay, so. I've seen y'all fight, Todd. <laughs> yeah, you have, you have. And so, so here's the thing. It, the reason I don't like, I don't agree with this mm. being a commentary, I guess is if even if it was meant for that is that it takes two people well maybe it is because in the end they do this mm -hmm. but throughout the movie she's a hundred percent and he is not at all mm. unless he's sick and and then he's a hundred percent and he loves her a hundred percent so then they find a way their own little way of both being a hundred percent, you can't be 50, 50. You have to both be a hundred percent all the time. That means that in the end, if Jenny were to leave me, I would miss the piles of clothes in the floor. But right now they drive me crazy. <laughs> That's what that means. Yeah. Right now they drive me crazy, but I love coming home to them because I know she's there. I, I, right now the dirty dishes in the sink make me insane and it'll be 1130 at night. And I'm like, God dang it. Okay. I'm doing the dishes at 1130 at night because I can't take it. But to come home and those not be there would be terrible. It would be a terrible experience. Hmm. Does that mean it's a toxic relationship? No, no. It just means that something that's important to me is not necessarily important to, to her and that's okay. And vice versa. I don't care about I don't care about books. It's not my thing. I don't care about reading to her. It's a, it's her world. Like she loves it. That doesn't mean that we're in a toxic relationship because she loves something and I don't. It's like, it's, it's different. So, so, so that being the case, like she is a hundred percent all the time, whether she's poisoning him or not, she's just always a hundred percent. And he is not at all unless he's being poisoned now in the end he chooses chooses to be poisoned so that he can be and he becomes a hundred percent because he's i guess because and this is where the disconnect is to me and maybe you can help shed some light here because why does he choose in the end to be poisoned so that he can love her i think so you said a lot of great stuff first let's talk about their marriage because he yeah. gets sick that first time we don't really yeah. know, but we kind of know. They don't make it explicitly clear until several beats into that sequence that, oh yeah, she did that. Even though, again, they don't make it explicitly clear. And immediately after, 
that he comes to the dresses ready to go and he proposes. And I love that she makes him wait. He's like, will you marry me? What are you waiting for? Will you marry me? Um, and he needs that. He needs her to not be like just ready. Yes. And that's so good. And I love that they have the shot of the, the, the wedding gown that he's crafted for the princess and all that. It's all very topical. And then they go and get married. And immediately afterwards, they go on their honeymoon. And he immediately starts getting agitated with her noises again. And uh-huh. you can. It's very much the graduate, which we need to cover right. on this. We by do the need way. to cover. Yeah. And you can feel the instant regret of marriage, you know, on his face. Like, oh, God, what yeah. do I do for the rest of my life? I got to listen to her scraping toast or whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it's written on his face. And then, you know, she she goes off to, to ski. And there's a look on his face like, wait, she's going. And we're we're trying to read where that is. And it's not until she wants to go dancing on New Year's. And this is a beautiful sequence. He doesn't want to go. He's like, whatever, go with your little doctor boyfriend. And he's just, she leaves and he tries to go back to work and he can't. He can't. What does he do? He gets up. He waits at the door. He starts pacing. He's starting to go mad. And it's so beautiful because he can't focus. Um, and he, then he finally goes after her. It's very sweet to know that actually he, he, he wants her. He really loves her. And however annoyed he gets in those moments, He's going after her because he can't stand to be away from her. Um, and I think that's a little bit of the commentary of, you know, can't live with him, can't live without him kind of thing. It's like, yeah, that five seconds of peace is really wonderful. But the the other 55 seconds of that minute is torture. Like, I need them back. And it's a complete betrayal of what he says earlier in the film. What, you you want to know if I if I need you? I don't. I don't need you. And now suddenly he's in this place of being crippled by, I need someone. And this starts to get a little into why he's into the poisoning thing. Because the first time they go out for dinner, it's so weird that he starts asking about uh, her mother. And he has this whole little conversation of, do you have a picture? And she's like, yeah. He's like, can I see it? I don't have it on me. It's at home. He's like, oh, you should carry her everywhere with you. He's like, really? He's like, yeah, I carry mine. She's like, what? (laughs) He's like, I keep her here in my canvas. What does that mean? Like in the canvas of my coat, like I've sewn her into the lining, like some of her hair. Um, She's, you know, the most beautiful person or whatever he says. And she taught me my trade and um, I, I, I have to always keep her close to me. And it's, it's very strange on so many levels and so revealing of his perspective uh, and who he is as a person. On the one hand, his mother is very important to him. Fine. I mean, that's not the newest thing in the world, but it is kind of strange for someone to tell someone else what should be important to them. Like this guy is so in his own atmosphere that he thinks he knows what's best for everyone else as well. Like that's nutty. Like, don't go to someone else telling them what they must keep on them at all times. Like you're out of your gourd. And so as their relationship develops, he works himself to the bone. Like what, how many reprieves does he have in his day? He goes for a walk. That's as big. Like I get to let my hair down. No. And so I think part of the whole thing with the poisoning is it brings him closer to his mom, right? He has that hallucination of his mother. And I think that's really good for him. It feels whole and feels 
even closer. So she's bringing him closer to his mom. And then it's also rest. It's forced rest. She's giving him a, a break because if it's left up to him, he never stops. He will just never stop working and he's going to get exhausted until he can't move anymore anyway. And she noticed that early on that after one of his shows, he was suddenly like emptied and she's like, oh, he needs a little bit more of that, except it'll be for me now. And I think he appreciates her approach because that's also part of his approach of absolute control over his environment and feeling someone be that way with him. Uh, is comforting. And I, and I think it's a little bit of him searching for his mom and finding it in her, um, which is a whole other thing. Um, you do you buddy. Uh, but, yeah. And so I think it's a, com- a culmination of all those things of like, he actually gets some rest. Um, he gets closer to his mom and he actually feels loved by her absolute psychopathy. <laughs> like it's, mm-hmm. That's nuts. Uh, but the things that make people feel connected and, and human again uh, can maybe be nuts. I'm no psychologist, uh, but totally. Uh, totally. there might be something in there. That's my argument anyway, or at least uh, a version of it. No, it's a good, it's really great points there. I I totally see mm-hmm. that. The other thing. Okay. So we'll come, uh, we'll come back to that. Cause I do want to touch on cinematography because he didn't have his normal cinematographer. Mm. And instead he was like, you know what? We're going anyway, and I'll just figure it out because he it's not like he doesn't know what he's doing. Um, He's worked on a lot of movies. He's had a lot of these conversations, and now he's just like, I just have one fewer person to have this conversation with. And so it was a lot of discussion from what I remember. I haven't refreshed on this, but when this came out, it was a really big deal of like, should he have given credit to the cinematography to his camera operator? Uh, Because a lot of the conversations were from what I remember with his uh, cam op, as well as with his uh, uh, like production designer, um, as well as with his uh, gaffer, like where's all the light coming from? How are we going to light this? And then running a lot of tests. Oh, let's test, you know, and he did all the proper things you would do with your cinematographer um, or maybe your cinematographer would do without you, depending on how engaged you are in that stuff. He did a lot of lighting tests. He said, oh, I like this look. I don't like this look. I like this wallpaper with this light and with the sconce and whatever else. He, he did all the paces. Um, and so to a large degree, he was the cinematographer PTA. But on the day, he maybe he left some of those things up in the air a little bit more to, um, you know, his gaffer and genie and um, his cam op. And it's it's an interesting way to go. It's not like they... To me, they didn't nail a look. Like it's wait a minute. Gorgeous. So, so, but who ran the camera? Did he the run the camera? Operator. No, the camera operator ran the camera. And What's the difference between a cinematographer and a camera operator? Cinematographer is heading up that whole department. Like, gotcha. Everyone is reporting to him, um, and gotcha. there's still a pecking order, right? Like his mm-hmm. gaffer is reporting to him, and whoever uh, GE is reporting to your guy, whatever. Like. Uh, depending on, I guess, how you like to run things, but the size of the set. But yeah, uh, and so a lot of the conversations were had ahead of time. So they knew going in, here's what our our game plan is. Um, Let's execute. And maybe there's some fine tuning here or there or whatever, but pretty crazy. And I think he nailed it. Like, I don't know that there's a lot I would have changed, maybe. But there's one moment that jumped out at me twice where I was just like, hmm. I think a cinematographer does something different there. And that's where we're in the middle of an early montage uh, where Alma is getting into the flow of everything and 
she's in the middle and kind of getting brushed to the sides. And it's, it's interesting. And then we suddenly go from in the middle of this montage, we go and see Alma trying to bring tea into the room and she's knocking at the door. She doesn't get into the room. There's a whole other scene where she does that and it's a wreck. Um, but not this scene. This is a montage. She's got tea and she's knocking at the door and he's like, what do you want? It's Alma. I, I, I have tea. He's like, nah. <laughs> she's like, but I want to bring tea. <laughs> and he's just ignoring her. And then we cut to Cyril coming up the steps. And she she just goes straight in. And now we have Alma on the outside, not even looking in, just straight up on the outside. And that's a jarring cut going from Alma to Cyril on the steps. It, it Because you're in the middle of a montage, you expect a new cut to be a new moment. Like we're jumping forward in time. And here it threw me off. And it's not like they didn't try to work around it. Like there's a J cut there. They, they pre-lap the audio of the footsteps on the stairs. So that you're like, as you, when you cut, it completes the, the audio. Like we're now seeing what we're hearing. And so it's not like it doesn't work to some extent. But it, to me, it's still jarring enough that I'm questioning where we are in time and and it's not until she we see that uh, uh Alma's there that I'm like, oh okay, we're still in that same scene. It it does pull me out and it is jarring. And I think a cinematographer in that moment says, let's keep everything in one shot. Let's reverse yeah. the angle, right? And now we're gonna have one single cut by showing from the other side of of Alma looking down the hallway, and now we can see Cyril rise up from the steps. We hear the steps still. Before we see Cyril and now we see her rise in the frame. And what's interesting here is it creates a new blocking opportunity for the actors because what will happen, what has to happen is literally Cyril has to get between Alma and the door and she shoves her aside in order to go in. And it plays thematically much more into what's happening in that moment, as well as you don't have to introduce a new cut. And now it's just pacing the scene within the shot. Uh, which these are all incredible actors. Uh, you wouldn't have a problem. And so that's, a. I think in my opinion, like my ignorance. That's a, no, uh, dude, that I'm, that is a director's, that is a really great point from a fellow director of like, like, okay, if we're in montages, you're supposed to, you know, new cuts mean new moments. I've never thought about that. I'm, I want to call that out. Like, that's a mm -hmm. great note. Cause I've never thought about that as like a, you know, you just experience montages and, and you don't know how you feel, how they make you feel what you feel. But yeah, for that cut to happen makes me feel like it should be another moment in time because we've been, every cut has been new moments of time. So why not just make it one shot? She walks into frame and she's there. Like, yeah, yeah makes total sense. Obviously, I mean, every montage is its own thing. So I, I don't want to be like dogmatic about it or anything. Sure. But in this case, that's the way it felt. I know that that cut definitely felt jarring for me twice and so yeah maybe in this case maybe just keep it yeah i don't know but i think that's a conversation and that's the way a cinematographer is thinking about what we're doing and how it fits into the bigger picture and it's like oh actually for this one let's do this instead and it's like oh and the audience may or may not notice but it's a making a movie of course is about making a thousand little decisions to add up to something else and anything you can do to keep the viewer that much engaged and oriented when you want them to be oriented. Uh, and this didn't feel like a, a, a moment to have like disorientation. Um, this didn't feel like that kind of moment. Yeah. So that's where my head went. And 
a reason why. Well, yeah. Well, one of the things I've learned on this podcast from you is that edits mean energy. Hmm. And when you're trying to take energy away from when you're trying to add energy, you add edits, right? It just keeps things flowing and stuff. So if you're trying to keep everything still, you take away edits, right? You take, you, you make everything in, in a single shot or, or whatever, but also I've learned, so I've learned that. So that's in, really interesting. Um, but also like this scene, which you just described all, is probably the reason why I don't like this movie very much, or it's just not my favorite PTA. I did like the movie, but it's, it's yeah. probably not my favorite PTA film because I feel like there are these cuts that don't need to be there throughout the film. There mm. are these moments, these, and granted, yes, they add up, you know, I, I understand, but I feel like this could have been so much shorter and still very punchy and because they have these gigantic moments, like the argument at the table, right? And when he passes out and, and rips the dress and um, his whole sickness situation. But like there are all these additional mo- like sections or moments that I feel like don't necessarily need to be there or maybe at least some cuts could be removed. And not even for a time, but just for for energy purpose. Like we're going to stay with these people in this moment, because I I like the idea of taking away cuts and being still in a moment. You know, the the mm-hmm. the long shot push in shot of him proposing to her is probably my favorite, one of my favorites of the whole film, yeah. because it's honest for what it's supposed to be. We don't do a million cuts. We're just sitting with them sitting in the moment when she doesn't say yes right away. Like you said, that's a great, uh, she doesn't give him what he wants right away. And that's why he's proposing to her. Right? Yeah, that's right. And we just stay there. It mm. feels like a very honest, honest way of telling this story that I think PTA was trying to tell in this way. But I, I don't feel that way throughout the film. I feel like there's a lot of, obviously when he's doing, when he's making dresses and he's working with a, a, a model, yeah, a lot of cuts because there's a lot going on in his mind. We are want to be in his mind. So a lot of cuts of the needle and him looking at, you know, pinching the the fabric and, you know, him concentrating. That's those are beautiful yeah, moments. Yeah. And that's why I was excited to see this film for those moments to be inside of his head. But I feel like those were few and far between. And mm. I was outside a lot. And that's OK. That's OK, because that's the perspective. But it could. Yeah. Yeah, so it was just disjointed in that regard for me. Interesting. Um, yeah, and it's funny because what was disjointed or, you know, uh, too much pushing and pulling for you was I felt inside his head and her head the entire time. Like I was always mm. like, oh, I know what she's feeling and I know what she's thinking. And it's such good writing to not have to call those things out loud. And that's, that's so great hard to do. Incredible writing and, of course, acting. I can't overstate that. The other thing, as far as uh, story and writing goes, uh, there's so many beautiful little moments you're talking about, like him taking all the measurements and those little inserts. Those cuts are so good. And watching her, I love that moment as a character building moment and way to reveal life with him because he, you know, sneaks her up into the attic or wherever the that room is and she strips down to whatever that thing is, um, her undergarments and starts getting ready and then Cyril walks in and is suddenly in the room and she's all up in like I love watching throughout the scene Alma's discomfort and the way she bristles at times against Reynolds 
Cyril just unceremoniously joins in without any introduction uh, and invades Alma's space, starts smelling her, grabs, you know, shakes her hand, doesn't let go, um, and is just all up in there. And it's so revealing of what she should expect by being around him um, and how he's never really alone. And of course, that starts to drive her nuts. Um, but then as he finalizes that dress and they go out and we're listening to her voiceover, there's I love hearing what she's saying because uh, this is a really cool statement about fashion, um, which was, you know, I never really liked myself, thought my shoulders were too wide, neck was too skinny like a bird, and I had no breasts. But in his work, I become perfect. And it's such a cool idea about how we can make others feel good with our art um, and with our craft. And for her, that made her feel more valuable and, and I don't know, better about herself. That's cool. That's not bad. And I love as she's going on about how beautiful she feels now and they sit down and at dinner um in this hoity-toity restaurant and he he's telling her like you're beautiful truly you're making me hungry um and then out of the right side of the the, the scene we hear a scrape and cyril sits down and joins them <laughs> I love that because audio is very intentional in this film in most films, but certainly in this one. And to me, if you consider that this is a really fancy restaurant, uh, they wouldn't do that. They're not going to scooch a table in so carelessly. Like it, it, it's underscoring that she never really has uh, Reynolds to herself. And now she's being joined and it's interrupting on multiple, you know, ways her enjoying this moment that he created for her and is now kind of taking away from her. Um, and she's, and yeah, it's just a great use of audio there. The other thing, their marriage, uh, her arrival, there's this great moment. Oh my God. When he's so frustrated towards the end and he sits down with Cyril and he's upset. He's like, you got to do something about her. Like her arrival has cast a very long shadow and he's just going on and on about how he hates having her there and she's wrecking everything. And as he's saying this, you know, she walks in from the background. And again, this is a deliberate use of audio. The door doesn't make a noise. She doesn't make a noise. I, I just don't believe in 1950s anywhere. Doors aren't creaking loudly, you know, uh, but it's a decision so that we think he has no idea that she's there. And there's this big moment that's about to happen. We're expecting an explosion of, Oh, you don't want me here. Well, then I'm leaving and she's going to storm off and she hears everything and doesn't react at all. And neither does Cyril. <laughs> and he comments about, well, aren't you just the perfect model of, you know, decency or whatever? It's like, what a great, like upsetting of the table. You know, the, the normal film turns that into a big lover's quarrel. And this movie is like, meh. Say what you want. I know who you are. I know what I want. I know what you want. Even if you're going to act like a spoiled little brat, it's fine. Um, and they go on about their lives and everything's fine. <laughs> like, it's kind of wild to have that moment where nothing happens. And these other little moments where big things happen. It's great storytelling. Uh, it pulls you in and then kind of sucker punches you a little bit. Yeah. I, what did you think of that moment? Were you expecting that, right? Like, oh, she's about to get all up in his business. And then. Oh. Yeah. He whiffs. Yeah, I was. I was. I was at least expecting. Well, I wasn't necessarily. Ex I don't think expecting her to blow up, but I was expecting him to react differently <laughs> to knowing that she was in the room. You know what I mean? Like, 
<laughs> and I think that's the point probably, you know, of just like his character. He like literally cannot see outside of his own personal skin bubble. Um, uh, and so he just says and reacts to things, but to, for him also, like it, it was just weird. He went into the other room to complain to Cyril. He, he could have complained to her if he really didn't care if she, if she knew it or not. But he just wanted to complain to Cyril because he's a little bitch, you know, like, like, um, but he's a jerky one, too. So, I, I yeah, I did not expect him to he, to he, just be so aloof that she was in the room and heard what he said. You know, he is a jerk and he is a bitch. And it's so funny that I don't know if it's because of that, but in spite of it, at least I still really love him and I'm and I'm kind of rooting for him. And I think it's because of how passionate he is about what he does. Mm-hmm. And how good he is at it. Yeah. And there is something strange about that to to look at someone and say, I would never sit across from you at a table and enjoy my night. Not in a thousand years. And yet I kind of like you. And mm-hmm. I don't know which part of that is Daniel Day Lewis's effect and which part of that is, you know, great writing and just a really interesting environment and scenario. Yeah. I would argue that a lot of it is Daniel day Lewis. Maybe so. (laughs) Because I guarantee, you know, people who love what they do and are great at it. And you don't, (laughs) you're not like, I like that guy because he's very, he, he works really hard. No, he's just a jerk and I'm not going to associate with him. Like, but it's Daniel day Lewis and you're forced to sit with him for two hours, Yeah, you know, and, and to experience these moments that you would never experience with a quote unquote jerky person who's passionate about what they do. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you and I are, I don't know. I think we're similar in that. I don't care how good you are at something. If you're a jerk to me, I don't want to be around you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I have more, I have better things to do with my life than to be forced to sit with you and, and to try to understand you for two and a half hours. Yeah. And I'm not going to do it, but you're forced (laughs) because you're watching a movie to be with this guy. And as good as Daniel Day-Lewis is at acting, he's still Daniel Day-Lewis and you want to watch him. Yeah, so that, that's I would fair. argue a lot of it is that, but that's fair. I, I, I do, see your point. I have definitely sat through movies though, where I'm like, I want this person to die. Like I've been rooting against heroes before. Mm. And so you're, I mm-hmm. think you're right. Like that combination of you get to sit with Daniel Day-Lewis for two hours. That's, that's long enough to just, you know, you, you still like him. Like, I don't know that he has any redeemable moments, but it's also part of his demeanor, right? Like when he's nasty, he's never loud or particularly degrading about it. Like he's so soft-spoken about it, but there's also no regret. It's such an interesting character development or uh, character choice to have this guy be so careless with people's feelings and yet not this kind of brute yeah, I don't know. How are we thinking about that one? <laughs> yeah, he's so good. I mean, maybe this is a good movie because we're sitting here talking about all these like little details and everything. So tiny details. Yeah, uh, that's, that's something to be said. My last little thought note was your comment about the music. I back and forth. Part of me agrees with you, and part of me doesn't. And I don't know that I have a strong. I guess I'm just mixed. I'm ambivalent about the whole thing because on the one hand, it does interrupt some moments. And it does feel a little, I don't know, uh, insecure about telling your story whenever you don't feel like I can sit in silence and watch a moment develop. And it's like, oh, let's use music. But on the other hand, 
I also do love how the piano and the orchestra adds a tone of majesty and like fairy tale wonder, no matter what we're actually seeing, because that's her experience through this world is it is a bit of a fairy tale for her to go from being a waitress to wearing the best design dresses in the world and um, attending weddings for royalty. And like, this is a pretty fairy tale thing that's happening to her. And I can see why uh, she would not be so anxious to go back to waiting tables and then also get caught up in trying to understand that world. And at the same time, hating it, but also appreciating it. Like her vehemence when that duchess or whoever she is, is sloppy drunk, wiping her mouth with the dress. And she's like oh. so mad. And she's staring at least as hard as uh, uh, Reynolds is because they're just watching her disgrace this dress. And she's like, she shouldn't be wearing it. <laughs> like She is not happy. Yeah. Um, and then they go and get the dress back. And she's the one who goes in there. He sends her. She's Alma. And she just storms in and takes the dress off her. Like, that's wild. But it's all kind of playing into a really nice, cohesive thing with the music at times. And maybe, to your point, probably didn't need it 100% of the time or however. It felt like 100 It may not have been, but... Definitely felt like 100%. There's probably some breaks that we could have used so that we can be swept away again, right? You go away so that you can come back. Um, that kind of thing. And it's pretty strong throughout. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I am torn. Um, interesting. Yeah, I, that's, I think that's all I got. I mean, there's so many weird little moments. Um, the Our great moments. The other moment with the tea whenever she goes in. And he's like, tea at this hour? Are you kidding me? She's like, it's leaving. Yeah. Uh, you shouldn't have brought it. It's leaving. Uh, and the tea is going out. The interruption is staying right here uh, with me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Ooh, here's the, here's the thing. And this is probably one. why this film is good. Yeah. Like that. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. <laughs> he, he's not wrong. He's a, he's a jerk about it, but he's not wrong. <laughs> you know, there's a, but there's a, a better way to. Yeah. to do that but his uh, anyway conflict resolution not the best but <laughs> uh yeah <laughs> no great point nice oh um, man that's I, yeah, I, I don't know I man I, yeah. I feel like it's i feel like it's um it's an experience you, you you know you have to you do have to to you should watch it right yeah. like i i feel like th this is like a, a filmmaker's film yeah. as well like it you know it'll teach you a lot and and if that was the case where he couldn't get his cinematographer, but he maybe he like really needed to make this film at a specific time or else he wouldn't have Daniel Day-Lewis, right? Or, or something. Maybe there was something around that. And for him to just say, forget it. We're going to do it. I'm going to I'm going to do this because I got to get it done. Like maybe that's part of what happened. And we're, you know, we can't judge because that's a guy who is it might be a description of him, you know, uh, yeah. uh Woodcock might be him and where he's he's so driven and focused and has such a vision that he does not let anything stop him and he's going to go do this thing that he has in his head you know and maybe it's maybe that's part of what this is is a is him a, a letting us see what it's like to be in PTA's brain I'm no no cinematographer all right I'll do it fine you know, I do it anyway. I mean, I've got to approve all the things anyway. I've done these. I've made a lot of movies that are great. So I think I can do it. 
And I mean, honestly, he did a fantastic job. You know, like you're right. The color looks beautiful. The um, a lot of the stuff is a lot of the shots are really great. I didn't like a lot of them, but a lot of them are really great. This is obviously shot on film, and and you can tell, and it's it had to be. Yeah, it had to be shot on film. Like they, you can't shoot a 1950s film with Daniel Day Lewis on digital. No. <laughs> Not allowed. Not now. You know, you go back to like Gangs of New York. It, that doesn't matter. Like right. you can shoot that on whatever because it was kind of like yeah, um, it was you know eighteen hundreds. They didn't even have right right seventeen hundreds. They didn't even ha- have charcoal. Movies. This is all so, hand drawn. Um, yeah. Right. Exactly. So it's like yeah, that, that's fine. But for this, no, you kind of needed to, and he was very honest about it. And I, I felt so anyway. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's the coolest thing in the world to be like, we go with what we have. Like this is going to be cool anyway like i have so much respect uh because that's kind of how i operate like you know i would love to have my druthers sometimes you can't have it all and you work with what you got and have fun and you learn like i'm sure he walked away from this saying if i could do it again i would change this this and this and that's every movie you're always learning like if scorsese is saying he's just now getting to the point in his career where he understands what film can be my God, it just doesn't end. It never stops. Um, and so I love that he he went for it. I think, yeah, I I would step over many corpses in order to achieve what he achieved here. No question. <laughs> nice. What uh what are you gonna right. recommend this week, man? I I'm I'm gonna recommend a Netflix film, but you know, like it's it's Netflix, so whatever. But I'm gonna uh, just because it's another kind of detailed insight into into uh, a person's kind of like dedication uh but also another story of relationship i'm gonna um uh, recommend maestro uh mm. on netflix with bradley cooper another excellent performance um from a guy who i really I, I just think he's a fantastic actor and he can do a lot and i think he does a really great job so maestro on netflix Nice. I will check that out. I keep meaning to. I'm going to recommend another PTA film. Uh, Probably seen it, but if you haven't, Punch Drunk Love. It's uh, I almost recommended that. Yeah, it's like it's it's kind of divisive just from the standpoint of it's Adam Sandler. And if you a lot of if you like PTA films, chances are you're not a huge Adam Sandler fan. (laughs) So like seeing those two things collide. And it's interesting because it's not like he's not very Adam Sandlery. Like he's still bringing a heavy dose of Adam Sandler, but just with a Paul Thomas Anderson sensibility. And it's wonderful. Like, I love it. I'm not, I like Adam Sandler in like dramas. Um, I'm not a huge comedy fan. Once I like left high school, I, I don't know. I didn't need to see Waterboy kind of stuff anymore, but him in punch drunk love is really interesting. It's, uh, it's fun. And yeah, punch drunk love just, It's its own thing for sure. Yeah. Stay tuned for next week. We are going to take a look at another PTA film. This one's called The Master, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Jesse Plemons, and of course, Joaquin Phoenix. And so check that out and we will uh, take a dive into that. We're actually going to miss next week. We're we're running right into my production of uh, my next short film. So it's probably better if I don't try to handle too many balls in the air at once. 
only so much. And so, yeah, week after that, though. Anyway, if you want to comment on this episode, you know, subscribe, review, all the things. And you can find this thread at thepestpodcast.com slash phantom thread. I see what you did there. (laughs) Picking up what you're putting down. Uh, And our quote of the day today is from Coco Chanel. There's no time for cut and dry monotony. There's time for work and time for love. That leaves no other time. So obviously Coco Chanel is a well-known name and she's divisive. Like a lot of stuff has come out about her in recent years that makes her really divisive. But conceptually, I really appreciate what she's saying here. Uh, There's time for work and time for love. I think society is like really down on work the last whatever, several years. And I get it. Like if you, if you don't love what you do, sure. Like maybe you stock rooms and you don't love stocking grocery store shelves. Uh, Okay, cool. That's not your thing. But by and large, there is something really wonderful about working. And I think that's becoming really frowned on to say out loud. Like, I love working. I love what I do. I love creating. Um, I love getting into something and pouring all of myself out into it. uh, And then like feeling exhausted afterwards. Like that's all really good. It's a good experience, I think, as a human being uh, to, to pour yourself out. And I don't think we hear enough of that. Everything is like, work sucks, capitalism sucks, uh, we should get to just, uh, whatever, go eat grapes off of trees or something. I don't know where grapes grow. Uh, vines, I guess. But <laughs> grapes off of trees. <laughs> this is the best episode ever. <laughs> but, like, there is something to be said for, you know, actually doing something and, and, and emptying yourself. And I love that, you know, work and love really combines for a very satisfying life if you're doing it right. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean you have to love what you do. I guess some people do what they have to because what they love in life is love and their families and, or their hobbies. I don't know, but yeah, I, I'm not down on anybody, I guess is my point is if you love working like I do, that's really cool. And keep going. Um, if you love being bored, great. That's what you love. Go be bored. But I think the less you, if you're dealing with something, if you have a, an outlet for that work is a really great way to, to find meaning in life. And, and there's a lot of depression that is probably out there where it's just like, man, you're not, you're not contributing. Go help people. Go get outside yourself, get outside your head a little bit. And Go volunteer. Like, that's work, you know? Uh, And it's also love and it's also helping people. Like, life has so much more meaning through other people. And I think that's the other thing about Phantom Thread that I love is he's missing out on something and he doesn't know what it is until he finds her. And that's why he says, I think I've been looking for you my whole life. You know, he didn't know until he had her. And so, I don't know, I'm, I'm just ranting. <laughs> no, I, dude, I, I totally get it. It's funny because this has been a problem. I've seen this as a problem in my life for a long time. That what, The way that I grew up was, and I, I, I totally <clears throat> privileged uh, upbringing. Mm. Uh, be the first to tell you that. My, my, my mother specifically was very adamant about do not ever let work get in the way of family. To a fault, I think. So I always grew up thinking, just do enough. But everything is about family, right? Everything is about like, 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 you you know, being with the ones you love. And that's, that's everything. But that was almost to a fault, because 
I didn't really ever know how much work it took to be great at something. Does that make mm, sense? Yeah. So when, you, when I see something like, like Kobe Bryant talk about how much work he would put in, I would work, you know, he would practice three times a day for three hours a day or some three hours a time. And I, it would blow my mind of thinking, oh, that's how much you have to work. You have to sacrifice. You ha- if you want to be really good, you have. It's okay to not be, but if you do, you have to do all of this and sacrifice, sacrifice some family, sacrifice some friends, sacrifice going out and all that stuff. But I never knew that growing up. I just, all I thought of was there's one important thing and that's the people you love. Nothing else matters. And while that's true, yeah. if you have a dream, you have to make that the most important thing for a, at least a, a season in your life. Yeah. And I was never told that. So I feel a little, sometimes I feel a little robbed in that regard. I don't, Yeah, I don't, yeah, I'm not complaining, I get it. you know, but if somebody were to tell you were to sit, have sat me down and said, okay, so you want to be an athlete, you're going to fail unless, unless you dedicate the next 10 years of your life to doing nothing but that. If somebody would have told me that when I was 10 my life would be very i mean i'm fi- i'm fine with where it is i'm yeah, very yeah. happy but my life would have been very different if somebody would have told me how much work i would have to be done to be great and i think everybody kind of should have that should have somebody to tell them look so it's okay cuz i agree with you that work the idea of being a workaholic is like shunned and like 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 you know you know family's always first and that while that's true mm-hmm. you've got to have somebody telling you how to like what the real world is like and how many people are working on exactly what you're doing right now and have been hours ago and will be for hours from now. So if you want to be really good, you've got to at least do that and to prioritize that. And that's okay too. You know, I mean, maybe not for your entire life, right? You know, there's got to be a season where you say, no, 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 I'm going to put my kids first. I'm going to put, you know, or whatever, um, take your poison mushrooms. Yeah. What? Well, <laughs> <mushrooms. laughs> it's got to be a, a drug season in your life. <laughs> you need a drug season. Uh, uh, anyway, that it's yeah. really interesting that you point that out. So, yeah. Thanks, man. Um, Beautiful. Awesome. Well, I I love it when we have these episodes and we disagree about things. Yeah. Because we can just disagree. We can disagree and just leave it at that. Yeah. You know, I'm not gonna watch this movie again to try to see your point of view. <laughs> it just is. <laughs> It's going to be honest, uh, but, but I did learn some things and I, I did get something out of this by talking to you about it that I didn't get from just watching it. I think that's the whole point of why we do this every week. And, yeah. and well, that's one of the points. I True. also get to see you. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's a which I was thinking me, the yeah. other day, I was thinking, man, I should just fly Wes out here. Cause I miss him. <laughs> Cause I was talking to Simon the other night, my son, and I, it, we, he was, we were laying in bed and he, he got a little sad. I was like, what's up buddy? And he goes, he goes, what if, because he has some friends now like that are really good friends. He's like, what if when I grow up, I'm not friends with Chris anymore? And he got really sad. And I said, well, buddy, you know, sometimes there's seasons in your life where you are friends with someone and then you're not anymore. I said, uh, but you can also be friends with somebody that you don't see. I don't see Uncle Wes. I haven't seen Uncle Wes in a year, you know, but I see him every week. We do a podcast, you know, and that kind of eased his mind a little bit. So it, this has just been it's been wonderful. I can't believe we're on episode 263. That's nuts. And it's the other part about art is you get to come together and create something together. 
Yeah, it brings people together. Art is so good, y'all. <laughs> That's it. You can quote me. <laughs> Mic drop. Mic drop. All right. Thank you guys for joining us. I had a great time talking to you, man. Uh, if there's a, a film that you'd like to see us uh, review, please, or hear us review, please share it with us. Maybe we'll review it. Please subscribe. Review us wherever you can. Wherever you can. It really helps. Um, and if there's a, a comment you'd like to make, maybe you saw Phantom Thread in a different light. We'd love to hear it. Until next time, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies.